A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including those from the worlds of literature, music, film and of course art, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Nick Cave, an artist who creates elaborate sculptures and found object installations and is best known for his sound suits, which blend sculpture, performance, fashion and social activism. His work veers from the intimate and the homespun object to vast installations and performances involving multiple participants. Nick was born in Fulton in the state of Missouri in the US. He was one of seven brothers and paints an almost utopian image of his upbringing from which he's carried much into his art making. Particularly important were the quilt makers and seamstresses on his mother's side of the family, which he credits with his curiosity for adorning the body. Then he and his brother Jack, who's also an artist and collaborates with Nick today, had painting competitions. It's clear that creativity and making were central to the family's life and as Nick has said, these collective activities help build a profound sense of community. Nick studied fibre art at the Kansas City Art Institute, while also taking dance classes with the esteemed choreographer Alvin Ailey. He went on to study at the North Texas State University in Denton, and then at the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. He stayed in the Midwest ever since and lives and works in Chicago today, where he's the Professor of Fashion, Body and Garment at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It was at the Art Institute that he experienced the trauma and ultimately the epiphany that led him to create his first sound suit. You'll hear more about this in our conversation, but suffice to say that the violence Nick has experienced and witnessed as a queer black man has underpinned his entire practice. The first sound suit was made in 1992 from twigs, but they've gone on to become ever more elaborate, fashioned from everything from beads and buttons to sequined appliques, pipe cleaners, synthetic hair, metal flowers, sock monkeys, and stuffed animals, colourful and outlandish and drawing on a wealth of references from fashion, art and popular culture. The sound suits are intended to camouflage the body, creating a kind of flamboyant armour, a second skin that conceals race, class and gender. They challenge the viewer to look without judgement and as such they're wearable objects of protest, the uniform of social justice, incorporating allusions to both the brutality that leads to activism and the empowerment it seeks. At the heart of the making of the sound suits is a form of collage, and this is common to Nick's sculptural installations. Some are assembled from antique objects that he collects, several of which are examples of racist attitudes and the stereotyping of black people. He calls these objects relics and brings them together with other found objects in potent tableau. For instance, in Seasick, he combined one such relic with a gilded model ship and folk paintings of colonial-era seafaring vessels, unmistakably linking contemporary racism with the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade. Another distinctive strand involves Nick using casts of his own body, often his arms and hands. With them, he explores the way that gestures made by black bodies can become culturally and historically loaded symbols. They often evoke the rallying cries of protest movements. One work in the series called Arm Peace, spelt P-E-A-C-E, evokes the raised fist of the black power movement, while another suggests hands raised in submission and therefore recalls the Black Lives Matter protest chant, hands up, don't shoot. The arm piece sculptures are accompanied by metal flowers, which inevitably prompt multiple associations. On the one hand, they evoke memorials, but they also suggest the potential for fecundity and new growth. And this complexity, this web of meanings, extends to Nick's performances. Among his most ambitious works was The Let Go, a project for the Park Avenue Armory in New York in 2018. It was described as a dance-based town hall, part installation, part performance, to which New York communities were invited to participate 
participate in an array of activities. Nick orchestrated performances involving his sound suits and invited musical artists as diverse as the Sing Harlem Choir and the Chicago house pioneer Marshall Jefferson to perform, as well as engaging community organisations ranging from yoga practitioners to hula hoopers and staging dance workshops. The vast space was activated by a moving mylar curtain, which he called Chase, which, for all its visual shimmer, had an underlying political and social significance, which Nick explains in our conversation. This is arguably the consistent through-line in all Nick's work, as his retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago and the Guggenheim Museum in New York in 2022 has proved. A balance between openness, extravagance, exuberance and positive energy, and a searing reflection on the troubling social realities of our present. He has said, I want it to be beautiful even when the subject is hard. And I began our conversation by asking him why he had that compulsion to draw beauty from adversity. You know, when I think about the practice, I think about like this sort of space that I sort of am existing in. And, you know, this space sometimes is hard. Uh, Sometimes it's easy, but I think for the most part, it's both. I think it's a world in which, you know, one has to figure out how they are going to accept perhaps what is going on around them, being present in the world, is accepting the world as it is. And how do I find ways to think in this sort of objective way that allows me to move forward. And I tend to do that through forms of beauty. And so that has always been my sort of rebellion, this act of beauty. I was really struck reading about your work that you did a parade when you were still a teenager. Oh, yeah. And it seems to me that that's an extraordinarily sophisticated understanding of what art can be when you're an undergraduate, to to say, okay, I'm going to do a parade and it's a form of art. A lot of people at that age are still thinking about rectangles and plinths, you know. (laughs) But, you know, as a young adult interested in the body in some aspect, uh, and what does that mean? and, And how does that allow me to sort of think about the role of the physical self in space? really led me to think about something other than the white walls, the canvas, and really started to think about like public space and started to think about this idea of happenings and spectacles and and sort of realizing that really the agency of me getting immediate response is how do I bring it into the public realm? And so I've always worked in this sort of interesting way of social practice, pulling people together to sort of create an experience that is then delivered to the public. And so I've always found that to be this platform, something about the immediacy of that it's happening in the moment the response is in the moment the reaction is in the moment it's really sort of me thinking about accessibility and like putting it out in the world and sort of seeing what the reaction will be and gathering that as this sort of data and uh, understanding of what it is that I'm creating, making, and how's that sort of recede. So, you know, it's all like a gamble. It's all taking a chance and just sort of going with the flow, but being very open and very aware of the moment. You know, I think as a young artist, the idea of collaboration wasn't even in my vocabulary in terms of how I was thinking as opposed to pulling like my friends and other, you know, they were also studying at the Kansas City Art Institute. And, you know, every Friday at the end of the month was open studio. So it was always performance happening on the campus. 
of some sort. And, you know, you just became accustomed and part of this sort of community in, in that sort of way, which was really quite interesting. And, and so just being aware of these sort of platforms and how they can be sort of used and operated was of interest to me. And of course, when you were at the Kansas City Art Institute, you also studied with Alvin Ailey, didn't you, the choreographer? Yeah, I studied also dance at the University of Kansas, Kansas City, which was an affiliated Alvin Ailey program. But I wasn't studying dance for the sake of wanting to be a dancer, but really sort of looking at it as another discipline. Because I was making these wearable things for the body that implies movement in some capacity. And so I've always looked at the body as this sort of vehicle, again, this sort of extension of an idea. Absolutely. And movement is really present even when you're working with objects as well, isn't it? It strikes me that there's a constant sense in which objects are being transformed. The eye can't rest on one singular thing. You're constantly pulling us and pushing us into new territory, even when, in theory, the object is static. You know, again, I think that comes from my sort of time and research, uh, let's say, at the Museum of Natural History. And I'm looking at these artifacts that serve a purpose within a particular culture, but I'm also forced to look at them as this sort of static object, the static form. And what am I sort of consuming and imagining and reimagining its function or how it's to be worn, where it's worn on the body, what role does it play? So I've always been interested in this sort of double kind of point of view, this sort of perspective that, you know, it could be performative, but it also can exist as a sculptural object. So I've always been interested in that from that period where, you know, I was at these museums and I'm like, well, why is this here? Why is this here as an object to observe and to experience? And yet it serves a greater purpose. So I was always interested in the duality of, of that space and, and how art can sort of operate in these two spaces. And of course, when you're gathering the relics, as you call them, these objects, which must be quite painful objects for you to contemplate, I wonder, can you tell me something about that sort of transformative process in using those objects, these objects which often have white supremacist histories or certainly racist histories? Well, you know, I think that, you know, as I'm out scouting and, and sort of collecting my resources because I really believe that, you know, my resources are really outside of the studio and it's out here in the world. And so, you know, I'm sort of looking for my sort of basic foundation materials, but then I'm wide open to what I may discover in the process of gathering and resourcing. You know, I came across this one object that was a sort of a bust of a Black man's head. And it was up on this top shelf. I pulled it down and it says spittoon. And I literally was just like, what? 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 And that was the beginning of a body of work. Everything shifted in that moment. And you made that work seasick with it, right? Yeah, and this was a piece titled Seasick. And so that was this pivotal moment. And it's always a moment that sort of triggers a shift in the practice. And so I started traveling around the country looking for these sort of oppressive humiliating objects that I sort of, as I started to do the research, it was interesting to think about this translation and this sort of shift in consumerism and how racism also was finding its way through objects. And so that was interesting to me to sort of be on this quest for looking for these sort of objects. And that then built this body of work, which then I've also created a newspaper that was a takeaway 
that was descriptions of the objects where they were found and then also a couple of essays. So, you know, again, wanting that conversation to continue in this takeaway data report of sorts. I don't know what's going to trigger or shift the narrative, but it was that, you know, very well was George Floyd. It was very much so Trayvon Martin. So again, I'm working in this space where I'm moving forward, but at the same time, I am also triggered and very much in this space of reacting in those moments of crisis. And how quickly does that triggered nature sort of emerge into an idea, if you like? Do you need to contemplate or do you need the kind of instinctive response to begin to form into a work? I think it's both. I think the contemplation comes first because my body has to yet accept what has just occurred And I have to sort of be open to the realization that this has existed, that it is now. And then it's really through this sort of impulse of being in the moment. You know, it's a protest. It's how do I sort of react in response to the call? And so, you know, I'm struggling with that at the same time, very grounded in terms of I know what my mechanisms are that are in place that allows me to call and respond in that sort of moment. You know, unfortunately, this exercise is very part of my process of acceptance, healing, and being socially open to this sort of projection of moving forward. Somehow I have to accept and at the same time I have to continue to move forward. You know, it can be uh, pushed back and forth, but, you know, I'm fortunate to have this sort of platform, this space, you know, art has always been my savior. It's the place that I go to, to work it out. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? The first artist that I had an emotional reaction to was Kiefer's work. I was in St. Louis, I think I was 18, and I was at St. Louis Art Museum, and there was this painting. I don't know why, but I like literally broke out in tears. And I was like, what is going on right now? Like, is this really happening as I'm experiencing this work? And that was the first emotional experience. And then I saw a Barclay Hendricks painting from like the early 70s. I think it was really the first time that I saw myself. And it was titled A Man in a White Suit. It was the first time that I saw myself in this portrait. And it was style. It was, you know, confidence. It was bold. You know, he had a strut in his sort of strive, in his position. And so I was just like, Oh, my God, I needed that painting in my life. But, you know, back then, $12,000 was like a million dollars to me. (laughs) There's a sort of spareness and elegance about it. it Really, I know that Ebony magazine was tremendously important to you as you were growing up, too. And it seems to me that those two things coexist very much in your imaginary, as as it were. Well, you know, Ebony magazine is how I was able to connect with fashion, and particularly couture, uh, to think about Eunice Johnson. And, you know, you know, she was really sort of not embraced in that industry. And so, 
she started to acquiring these pieces from these designers from their collections and then created the Ebony Fashion Fair, which was this amazing fashion performance that traveled around the U.S. that brought it into urban communities that, you know, I was like, what? And so again, this idea of performance spectacle dress as a way of expression it has always been like hands down. You know, it's really sort of comes out of the space that how do we continue to find ways to own our identity as it's always being reinterpreted in society? And so this, again, reclaiming the idea of this constant survey, this constant orientation of self and identity has always been part of the way in which I've always worked as well. Was it the physicality of the kefir that you think retrospectively looking back was it the, the sort of sheer physicality and that strange physicality that his works had that kind of moved you so much do you think? Yeah it's the physical kind of way in which the work was built. I could feel the emotion. I could feel the body in the making of that. That's really intriguing in the connection with your own work and how much the body is writ large in the work. Right. You know, that it's made through the action of the physical self. And so that really sort of fuels and brings life to this idea of of art and meaning. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? You know, I am all over the place. Uh, You know, it's not that it's one or the other. I try to live in the world really wide open. I just saw a recent show of Carrie James Marshall uh, at Jack Shaming Gallery. And I was like, okay, I know his work and sort of was thinking that it was just going to be the continuation of this work. But there was such a shift in the work that just, I saw the elevation. And that was like, I just love when the artist is like, it's time to move forward. It's time to make major leaps in the practice shifts that allows me to elevate on a different sort of sphere. So that show was amazing for me to see. But then, you know, I'm also like looking at, I would say in terms of like fashion designers, I'm looking at Scaparelli probably is my favorite. And just this sort of, oh, it's so amazing. And so I'm thinking about like this sort of space of surrealness and and the opulence of just that and how that translates into fashion. I was really interested in when we were all in COVID and how fashion had to shift into these short films. And it was no longer about the runway. And so, again, just like, you know, what can sort of shift a different way of presentation and how, you know, I'm thinking about that always within, you know, an exhibition or if I'm doing a performance. And so, again, just being aware and paying attention to all of that. But, you know, I'm looking at a lot of things. It's interesting you mentioned Scaffarelli because, of course, there's a wonderful connection between Scaffarelli and, for instance, Jean Cocteau, but between art and fashion, there was a real fluidity in that world. It seems to me speaks to your work very clearly. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I think this idea of looking at the fantastic, looking at this sort of otherness, shifting sort of how we read body and identify with body and self and sort of blaring the lines and just really how we are as people in the world and how we identify. So these are things that are sort of present as I'm moving forward within my own practice as well. 
You've already mentioned Kerry James Marshall, but which other contemporary artists do you most admire? You know, Lucas Samaras is mm. someone that I've always been in awe. And again, just the way in which the work is built, it's very much in line with how I approach that as well. And, you know, how do I sort of keep the space open for interpretation? I don't draw anything. I'm just making, you know, it's the impulse, working in the space of impulse and, and sort of allowing that to sort of dictate the shifts, the changes, the narrative, uh, and accepting what comes along in that process. So all of that is very sort of surreal. And, you know, that's that space of curiosity. Absolutely. And that links you very much to an artist who I've wondered to what extent you have engaged with, and that's Betty Saar's work. Who's, she's obviously a great hero to so many artists. And have you directly sort of responded to her work? Or is there a kind of almost a, a kind of moral spirit that, that inhabits both of your works that's sort of similar in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that subject matter, I think there are some similarities that the idea of the way in which we gather materials, also the sort of spirit that's built in the word, the historic spirit that's in the work. So, oh, yes, I'm very much aware of her work and her daughters, actually. What do you have pinned to your studio wall? Because your work's so teeming with stuff. I'm wondering, do you have lots around you influencing it? (laughs) You know, right now, what's on the studio wall, there is a number of new commissions that are coming up that are just sort of ideas. I really can't get into that. And (laughs) then I've been working with a number of fabricators on a new body of work, a completely new body of work that sits between painting and assemblage of some sort. But I'm not sure what... form that's taking. I'm looking at myself in a different lens. I'm looking at myself as a queer artist of color, uh, really for the first time in this sort of light. And so I don't know, but I'm curious And I'm just going to dive into the abyss and see what happens. I've heard you talk about that in the past, and you can go quite far along on a project before you know whether it will end up producing a work that you're going to show, right? You can really push yourself into almost to the end of a project before deciding if it's going to actually find a life in the world. Right. I think as an artist, you know, you've got to allow space, discovery, mistakes, and chance. It's all about chance to me. And, you know, I can only try, I can only experiment and jump in and and something will happen. Something's going to occur in that moment. You know, I've done it enough to know that, you know, I'm going to land on my feet somewhere. (laughs) And that's that sort of space that is intriguing to me is that, you know, as an artist, we continue to still learn so much about ourselves through our practice. And, you know, it's not over till it's over. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 130 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the recent additions to the app are institutions on opposite coasts of the US, the Brooklyn Museum in New York and the Wendell Museum in Culver City, California. They join a host of other museums on the app, many of which have shown Nick Cave's work. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find a guide to the Hayward Gallery. Its recent acclaim show, In the Black Fantastic, featured sound suits and other works by Nick, which the curator, Echo Eschen, discusses in an audio feature. In the Guggenheim Museum guide on Bloomberg Connects, meanwhile, you can hear Nick's in-depth conversations about aspects of his survey show, For Other More, with its curator, Naomi Beckwith. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? 
you know, of course, the Guggenheim. <laughs> Spent a lot of time most. there recently. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I do, when I'm traveling, I do museums. I do galleries all the time. It's important to see what's going on in the world. You know, it's not that one's greater than the other. You know, I'm, you know I love these art fairs because it gives you this broad perspective on what's going on high low and you just get a sense of everything and so I love that I love bringing my grad students there so they can get an understanding of how broad the industry is and and for them to sort of see that I know when I was a young artist and I went to my first art fair and I was so fucking depressed I would just be like, how is this possible? How does this happen? You know, I'm looking at my work thinking like, oh, it fits into none of these categories. What the hell? <laughs> uh, but you know what? That is sort of the beauty that this is this sort of smorgasbord of like our practices that it's just refreshing. And this is what you want to do. You have to sort of be aware. Yeah, and you have to kind of switch off your museum-looking mind, don't you? It's it's an art fair. It's a totally different kind of art experience. You're not going to get perfect booths here, you know. No, and that's the interesting thing is that you've got all of these art fairs at many at different levels, and so that's the beauty. Going to a younger art fair, going to like Untitled and and Basel, and you so you just are able to sort of navigate between all of this. And you'll find that there are trends and then you'll find that there are individuals that are sort of creating another wedge. And so this is the beauty of all of that. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? When I think about that question, I think about Rodney King. As a young artist just completing graduate school, taking a teaching position at the Art Institute of Chicago, you know, I'm getting ready to just really dive into a studio practice. And then when that happened in 92, my conscience was reawakened. I thought it was, but it was that incident that literally my practice shifted into a social practice in that instant. And so that's where I'm at right now, like, I've had no other practice but a social practice. Now I'm interested in, but if I did not have to deal with those sort of recurring experiences, what would I be making? Who would I be as an artist? But I think that was the moment where my conscious, my purpose was presented in front of me. And is it right that you went in and you realized that your fellow tutors at the school were kind of ambivalent or just weren't thinking well, weren't you know, in any way responding to this cataclysmic event i think you know this is the first time that we an incident had ever been recorded this wasn't new for me you know it was always you know occurring in in the news but to be recorded so i think we all were like not sure how to talk about it and I think for them, definitely not knowing how to sort of talk about it to me. And so it was really just, I think it was a very difficult time for everyone. It's, it always is a difficult time. But you went out to the park and that's where that first sound suit began being composed, right? Yeah, I was sitting in the park and I was just trying to put this all together in my head like looking at myself as a young black man and and thinking about who's here to protect me as a human being and the violation of that on a black body and just 
in that sort of struggle with myself. And I just happened to look down on the ground. There was a twig. And as I was reading about how they were describing Rodney King, larger than life, worked out with prison weights, scary. I was just trying to imagine what did that look like? And then this twig, I don't know. I started collecting the twigs in the park. And I think as I started to do that, I was thinking more about this idea of being insignificant, dismissed, discarded. And that object, I identified with that twig as that. And so I proceeded to collect all these twigs, went home, started to build what I thought was a sculpture. I didn't even realize I could wear it until it was done. And then the moment that I put it on, I realized that I had created a armor of sorts, you know, protecting my identity, myself. And yet the moment I moved in it, it made sound. And that led to the idea of protest. In order to be heard, you got to speak louder. So, you know, again, things just started to reveal themselves through this object. And that was the beginning of that body of work. And it's extraordinary how the sound suits have evolved over time and how they are enormously varied and even stretching into multiple sound suits. I'm thinking particularly of Speak Louder. This idea that the sound suit becomes a collaborative enterprise as well as an individual enterprise. It speaks of community. It speaks of the self. It's such a broad ranging series of subjects that it pulls into itself. Yeah, and also thinking about the collective, as you said, the collective self, thinking about the idea of protest and moving collectively together in crisis. And how do we do that? And how do we stand up for humanity and and question all of these sort of moments that are changing how we see ourselves in the world? And who are we in the world? And who do we want to be and become? Which writers or poets do you return to? You know, it's interesting because next to my bed, I just pulled out an old Langston Hughes book of poetry. I'm in the process of that, but I'm also reading Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, right now. And then I'm also looking at Dr. Jane Sanders' work, who does a lot of writing in queer theory in art practice, because that's really where I'm wanting to sort of move into. And then I'm, it's the end of the year. I'm in this space of reflection. I can feel my body moving into that sort of space. And that's big. I like the idea of you picking up Langston Hughes because it's so re-readable in the sense of that question you know about returning to literature it gives up more every time you read it even if you are familiar with that work and and many of us are familiar with so much of it you know this book I pulled off the bookshelf and I probably hadn't read it probably for 30 years this collection of poems and so you know again reintroducing myself to this work and again I think that poetic idea and and symmetry and emotion has always been part of the DNA in my work anyway. Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? What I listen to Every single day that I have for like probably 35, 40 years is Shirley Horn, CD, Here's to Life. Ah. Every day. It settles me in a way that I've never been settled. But, you know, my daily ritual is morning is classical, always. Just quiet sort of contemplating just to kind of come into the day. But then, you know, I have studio assistants. We rotate. And so in the afternoon, it could go from country to George Clinton. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned George because I wanted to ask you about Parliament Funkadelic Ah. and the legacy of their work in your work, as it were. Oh, my God. I can't tell you how many concerts 
as a young teenager getting the cheapest tickets, running to the front of the stage, and you're just in it in the most glorious way. I remember when George Clinton was coming down from the ceiling in the spaceship. I thought I was going to lose my mind. Just again, this spectacle of performance and the stage full of characters and just building this work in the moment. George Clinton, house music, it is what has saved my life because it has always been the sound that has allowed me to get on the dance floor and to work it out in that kind of space. I mean, I would live in the clubs. I would work in the studio till like one, two in the morning. I would go to the club. I would drop my coat and I would hit the dance floor. I would not get off the dance floor until I was going to walk out the door. So I never made friends, (laughs) never connected with anyone because it was part of this ritual. It was how I was working through frustrations was to just leave it on the dance floor. And I love also that LaBelle is a big factor it. Oh. It's great that Nonna Hendrix is in the Guggenheim catalogue, for instance, there's a discussion in which she's yeah, involved. Yeah, I mean, and... you know, LaBelle was the first, I would say, artist of colour that was giving me futurism in terms of dress that I had never imagined existing. I mean, coming up as a sort of a young creative person you know my mother was a bit concerned like why is your hair red green orange what are you doing what's going on are you okay and it was just me trying to find myself through dress and just exploring that sort of space and LaBelle just sealed the deal were they ever in your mind when you were creating the sound seat? So they ever, you know, do you ever think I need a bit more LaBelle in this? <laughs> LaBelle has always been part of, again, that DNA. You know, there are these sort of moments and these periods and these individuals and these work of arts and these experiences that sort of help shape one's identity. And so You know, just recently I had LaBelle perform at a fashion event that I did in response to the exhibition for Othermore. And so they were the musical component to this fashion performance. Fantastic. And of course, there's a sort of disco-y 70s funk vibe in performances like the Let Go at the Park Avenue Armory as well. At the Park Armory. You know, I realized how important dance was for me. And when I was doing the Let Go at the Park Armory, that was coming off the back of Until at Mass Mocha. Until was this real immersive installation that was created of millions and millions of small objects, millions. And I wanted to come off of that and strip down to one element in the Park Armory. And so I chose streamers to be this one element, but I wanted this 40-foot by 200-foot streamer to be moving throughout the entire Park Armory space as this object titled Chase. And so for me, that is me taking a up-close, microscopic look at a sound suit in motion. And so that space then was programmed where I worked with over 300 civic and social organizations and communities where they could come in and use the let go the space as a convening space as a movement space 
And that's what I was interested in, too, is that, you know, how can I create safe space for us all to come in, in spite of our differences, and sort of move and allow the body to illustrate and to project an emotion, which is harmless. It seems to me that that piece is almost like a kind of perfect summation of what you were talking about when you said, I want it to be beautiful, even when the subject is hard. Totally. In the sense that the chase element relates to police brutality, right? So there's... An, so well, it's, yeah, the chase element related to police brutality because, you know, I designed it where the streamer in the front was red, black, green, which is the African-American flag, followed by blue and black stripes, and so that's how the title Chase came into play. You would never know that by looking at it. But that's that sort of thing that I've always done with the work that I have to think about the audience. How do I bring them along on a journey that is complicated, that is dark, that is hard, that is painful? But yet there is this sense of hope in optimism and so that has always been my directive what other media influence your work let's talk about the whiz oh my god i mean <laughs> you know the sequence in the whiz where it's it's the sequence the color is and this is really the sequence where you see this promenade of style and fashion being paraded in the round and that is like oh my god just the energy just the collective vibe just the beauty and the grace of just standing in yourself and projecting and parading is like life to me so, you know, it is through film as well, but, you know, it's TikTok, it's YouTube. I mean, I'm telling you, all of this is research. I have found a number of musicians on TikTok that I've pulled into performances. And, you know, because again, I'm also interested in the space of possibility. Like, I'm fortunate to have this sort of platform, but there are incredible artists that don't get the recognition. And so I'm like, look, I've got a project. Are you interested? I would love to pull you in. I've always been open. I've always been pulling myself back and allowing space for others to participate and to be a part of because it's all about possibility to have an opportunity that allows you to reimagine yourself a greater self is everything that's what ballroom is that's what uh house music is that's what labelle is for me that's what george clinton it's you know how do we stand in self and without being apologetic and being as authentically one is like, oh my God, that is everything. You've already mentioned the musical discipline, but is there another particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Yeah, like sitting in silence. Critical. Can you imagine if we all sat in silence for one day, how different the world would be? Because let me tell you, when you sit with yourself, Honey, there you'll be. I mean, it's all the truth is going to be right there. And so to think that I have been doing that for decades and just falling apart and collecting myself, but being with self is probably the number one thing. And then just self-care, meaning every morning I do lightweight stretch just to get the body moving in order for me to sort of be ready and open for the day. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? It would be my Spinner Forest. Ah. Literally right now, there are three permanent Spinner Forest installations going up right now. One in Canada, Australia, 
and at the Kansas City airport all at the same time. But when I'm immersed in that artwork, I am probably the most calm that I've ever been. Something about the subtle movement, the reflection, the fantasy, the naticness, the environmentalness, the immersiveness of it all calms me, although it's at the same time hits you right in the gut. But somehow it puts me in a tranquil sort of state. It's almost like a hypnotic state. And I'm thinking about like, how can I put this in the living space where it's just all around and there's just paths that you get to where you need to get to, but you're immersed in that on the daily basis. And, you know, as the daylight changes, the reflection, the activity changes based on the material. So that would be the piece. And lastly, what is art for? Artists for us as people to interpret a reflection on society. It's for us to come together to have conversation about what it is that we see and to be open to that, it, you know, subjective, you know. And that's the sort of amazing thing for me is that, you know, I think about like my work, I think about like reviews. I don't really read them because it's not about that. It's really about how it is perceived by others and 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 what you sort of take away from that and how that is shared. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. Nick Cave, furthermore, is at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York until the 10th of April 2023. And Nick's in the group show In the Black Fantastic, which is at the Kunsthal Rotterdam in the Netherlands until the 9th of April next year. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Nick Cave. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.